Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So again, we have to, as we are taking time to go through these Ten Commandments, I want to just at the front discuss why are we marching through all ten of these Ten Commandments. We've been in this now for uh, eight weeks, I believe. We've been going through these Ten Commandments. And why are we taking the time to go through the Ten Commandments? And at one level, answering this question at church is kind of funny. I mean, because it really is, shouldn't be that outlandish or that astonishing that a church is going to take time to go through the Ten Commandments, which are a fundamental part of Christianity and have been for as long and for as long as uh, Christianity has been around, we have known the Ten Commandments. It kind of makes sense to do a series on the Ten Commandments, but in today's culture, you almost have to answer a, the question: Why are you guys going? through the Ten Commandments. Why are we going to take 12 weeks to go through this? For many, church church today is about being spiritual and being affirmed in your natural goodness. And so we would show up for church on a Sunday morning and what the guy up front would do is basically affirm you that, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not all there, but we're on our way and we're all good, we're all doing good, we're all good people and just kind of how, uh, kind of uh, pump us up and make us just feel warm fuzzies and walk out the door. And that's kind of what church is, is about for many in the culture today. I show up so that I can kind of have my ego built up, some positive reinforcement, and then I can march out. And if, if that's what you're looking for in church, I would, show, I would advise you not to show up when I'm up front. Because that is not, I, I'm not about the warm fuzzies. I'm about real joy. Let me be clear on that front. I'm not about you not being happy in God or not being glad in the gospel. And not. I want you to walk out with real joy, not faux joy, not pretend joy. I want you to walk out with real joy. Church is not about gathering together and praising each other for the work we've done. Aren't we great people? We've shown up. We have done, we've been moderately good all week long, and yay, we've done some good things, and so here we are to pat each other on the back. Church, again, is not about gathering together and praising each other for the work we've done. We gather and we rejoice in the work that God has done on the behalf of sinners like us. And rejoice greatly is exactly what we will do when we sit under the reality and the weight of what the Ten Commandments have to say about us in our natural state and the desperate condition we find ourselves in when we compare ourselves to the holy, righteous law of God. This, again, is about love for the gospel. I want this to be a gathering of people overwhelmed, with gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. Not a gathering of us that we sit around and say, aren't we glad that we are whatever, or we have done whatever. I want this to be a gathering of people overwhelmed with gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. I would argue that the mass exodus we have out of our churches today is precisely because we have cut the true message of the gospel out of churches. We have stopped emphasizing realities like this 
that before a holy and righteous God, we are sinners. Churches have stopped preaching the gospel. Therefore, sinners have stopped being converted. And believe it or not, unconverted sinners don't find any reason to show up at church. <laughs> it's not a mystery. If you're, not, if you're an unconverted sinner, if you don't know that you are a sinner before a righteous God, if you don't see clearly and hear the proclamation of the gospel such that you would become alive, be regenerated by what God has done for you in Christ, why would you ever darken the door of a church to hear a message you don't believe in or don't agree with? This is why, without an understanding of ourselves as sinners in desperate need of, of, of redemption, we become well-to-do people floating along on the top level of the Titanic. That's why the preaching of the gospel is so important. We don't have a, a clear understanding of our desperate condition. We become people up in the fancy galley uh, of the Titanic. And that iceberg hits, and everyone down below that's starting to get sunk in water, and I confess, most of my knowledge comes from the Leonardo DiCaprio movie Titanic. <laughs> But and that, that the boat starts filling up with water. Everyone that's down there where the water's coming in is like, we're in trouble. I'm going to go find a lifeboat. I'm going to go find some way to get out of here. And everybody up in the galley is like, what are all these people doing running around? We can't sink. Everything's fine. That's what we become when we totally dislodge ourselves from the reality of the Ten Commandments. Those in the top floor have no clear understanding of their peril, and therefore they have no urgency of their rescue, and therefore no real joy when they were to get on a lifeboat, possibly be one of the few, to get on a lifeboat and be saved. Because really, what were they being saved from? Perhaps we're more like a group of people sitting in the defendant's box who have fallen asleep as the charges are being read against us. Whole group of humanity sitting in the defendant's box. And the judge, the jury are sitting out here and the, the, the charges against us are being read and so many have fallen asleep to the charges. No idea. Some are awake and are listening and they are disturbed by the amount of guilt that is leveled against them. And then as a rescuer steps forward and says to the judge that he will take the guilt of the convicted upon himself to secure their liberty, those who have listened to the charges against them, shout for joy. Thank you. Yes, a rescuer. Joy comes as those who have heard the charges of guilt hear of a rescuer. And they get so loud that those who have been asleep stir from their slumber and tell them to please quiet down, having no idea the charges that still sit against them. We dig into the, into the Ten Commandments because there is nothing gained by sleeping through the charges that lay against you. And there is great joy that when you sit under the weight of them and you hear them acknowledging your guilt and then looking to your Savior, looking to the rescuer who frees you from that same guilt, church, please, do not go to sleep. Do not go to sleep. There is too much joy at stake here. Don't go to sleep because Darren wants to condemn you and make you feel terrible about yourself. That's not why I don't want you to go to sleep. Don't go to sleep because this is about your great highest joy in Jesus. There's too much joy at stake here. And honestly, there's too much eternal guilt that results in condemnation and hell for eternity at stake here. Do not go to sleep. So on to the third commandment. Do not murder. 
You shall not murder. Honest, in, the, in the original, it's just no murder. Two words. No murder. So if there is a commandment that we get to just quickly check off the list, won't this be the one? I mean, honestly, we've, as we go through these and Darren does his work to try to convince us, oh, uh, yeah, I've, I've broke off the first five. Surely now that we're at six, which says don't murder, can we check that one off the list? If you've murdered someone, please don't raise your hand. I will have to call the police. So call us. Don't even joke this time about uh, the, the idol in your pocket or whatever it was the last time. We, surely we can check this one off the list, can't we? I seriously doubt that anyone here is actually guilty of premeditated murder. So should we just say, okay, sixth commandment accomplished. Let's uh, take communion, sing a song, and go home. But we're going to look a little deeper, believe it or not, in this commandment. We're going to take our time, and we're going to go through all that this commandment actually does mean. We're going to look a little deeper. Remember that the commandments are exceedingly broad. Psalm 119, verse 96 tells us that they are synecdoche. It's that big fancy word, synecdoche. They are, they are where a synecdoche is when a small thing represents the whole or a part stands in for the whole. So I would say that we have, a, what's our head count? I would say to you, what's our head count today? I don't literally mean do we have a bunch of disembodied heads in here. I mean the whole person, right? But we're calling it a head count. Synecdoche is when a part stands in for the whole. When you go say, I went and got new wheels, you don't necessarily mean I got wheels, I got a new car. That's, that's synecdoche. So the commandments are when the part stands in for the whole and that when a negative commandment is stated, the op- opposite positive is also implied. So there's a ton, believe it or not, we need to cover in our remaining time on what the commandment actually means when it says, do not murder. The translation, and sometimes you'll see the Ten Commandments, it's thou shall not kill. If you, maybe you memorized that when you were going through, through Sunday school when you were a kid. You memorized thou shalt not kill. And, and the word kill is a little too broad there, actually. If you had some explanation on what that meant, that's good. But the word kill almost brings in too much gray area. The Hebrew word for here is the word for murder. Murder is a good translation of this Hebrew word. It is the personal taking of human life, taking justice or your own desires into your own hands. This means that the commandment does not prohibit all killing. Now, I have to just mention this. This isn't the main part of my sermon by any means, but we have to include, we have to Make clear this misunderstanding. It is not saying all killing is wrong. If you read the rest of your New Old Testament, you will see places where God actually commands killing. And God is not his own commandment breaker. Okay, He is not his own commandment breaker. So there are instances where killing is not breaking of the sixth commandment. We have issues like capital punishment. Now, I'm not here to get in a governmental or a, some sort of a, a public policy debate. All I'm saying is that you cannot use the sixth commandment. If you want to argue against capital punishment or for it, we can have that discussion. Not right now. But we can have that discussion. But you can't use the sixth commandment for do not murder. Capital punishment, when a government decides that that a person deserves death for the crimes that they committed, you cannot say, God says you shall not kill, you shall not murder, you're breaking the sixth commandment. That does not work. When it comes to just war theory, you, I know that, and even Daryl wrote about it in the newspaper, that, that movie recently, I can't think of the name of it, 
where the, the Seventh-day Adventist guy refused to shoot anybody in his war? Well, Hacksaw Ridge. That, that he refused to kill anyone. He's a Seventh-day Adventist. He's keeping all Ten Commandments. And he's saying that to not murder, to not kill, means that in war even you cannot shoot someone. Do not think that's a right application. There is such a thing as just war theory. You don't have time for that this morning. But, so there's two things, capital punishment, uh, just war. Third thing this commandment is not prohibiting is self-defense. So if, if you have to protect yourself or your family and deadly force is required, you cannot condemn someone and say, you shouldn't have done that. The sixth commandment says do not kill doesn't necessarily apply to self-defense. And lastly, and I've got to say this one as well, this doesn't mean eating meat. Okay, so if, you're, if you have vegan friends, they'll say to you, do you not read your Bible? It says, do not kill. A cow was killed for you to have a hamburger. No, okay? That is not what the sixth commandment is about. It is not about killing animals. It is not in any way, shape. My father, I grew up on a family farm. My father was not a sixth commandment breaker in this area. No offense, dad. Because we took pigs and cows to be slaughtered so that we could eat them that is not breaking the sixth commandment this is about humanity this is about humanity so those things they they go out the window but there are some areas in our culture today that i have to just be black and white about i cannot beat around the bush on some of these issues and so some areas in our culture today that we have to be black and white on and say they are breaking of the sixth commandment one of them is suicide Suicide is breaking of the sixth commandment. To take your own life is breaking of the sixth commandment. It is doing damage to the image bearer. It is self-murder. The second thing is abortion. Abortion is the taking of a human life. So the scriptures give us a clear picture that upon conception, a human life, if left untouched, unmessed with, will become a full-grown human. Now, we could have all kinds of conversation. And if you wanted to put myself out there, I'd love to have a conversation on these social topics, such as something like abortion. But it is the taking of a human life. And so therefore is prohibited by the sixth commandment that we should not be about the murder of any human life. And the third thing, we have suicide, abortion. We have euthanasia, which is physician-assisted suicide. Now, a lot of us aren't going to be on the physician side of it, but this has become very popular in Great Britain, places like that, where they are passing laws allowing physician-assisted suicide. And people are coming up with all sorts of reasons, even just mental trauma, that their, their lives are so bad and in their heads they cannot handle life that they're putting in requests to end their own life and having a physician to assist them with these justifications to take their life. These are prohibited by the sixth commandment. If you flip back to Genesis 9, still have your Bible out, this sixth commandment flows from the Christian worldview that mankind is created in the image and likeness of God. Every one of us sitting in here, no exception. Every human being sitting in here is created, the fancy term is imago Dei, in the image of God, Dei, being God, imago Dei. Every human being is created imago Dei and therefore has intrinsic value and dignity. Genesis 9, verse 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. 
This is the giving of the Noahic covenant that God puts between him and Noah. And he's just laying out some of the rules here. And is saying no one is to shed the blood of man. For what reason? Because God made man in his own image. Suicide, abortion, euthanasia, all of these things are destroying of the, uh, the image bearer of God. So those are all things prohibited by the sixth commandment. So these are an example of surface level obedience to the sixth commandment looks like, looks like just very surface level. If you committed any of these things, because um, abortion is, is real, if you've committed any of these things, Please stick around. There is mercy and grace and forgiveness at the cross of Jesus Christ for every commandment breaker. But it also doesn't mean we deny that these things are sinful and are wrong. So these are examples at a surface level of what obedience to the sixth commandment looks like. But but we have to ask, does this go deeper? Ask yourself this question. Is God only concerned with our external obedience? Or are there matters of the heart that God is concerned with. I mean, just that, is God only concerned with our external obedience? Or are there matters of the heart that God is concerned with? Isn't the answer obviously, yes, God is very concerned with matters of the heart. Our salvation is not about some external thing we do. It is a change of heart. It is God giving us a new heart. God is concerned with internal um, matters. John Calvin puts it this way in his Institutes. He says, If you recall that God is so speaking as lawgiver, this is God speaking, ponder at the same time that by this rule he wills to guide your soul. For it would be ridiculous that he who looks upon the thoughts of the heart and dwells especially on them should should instruct only the body in true righteousness. Going on, Calvin says, Therefore this law also forbids murder of the heart and enjoins the inner intent to save a brother's life. The hand, indeed, talking externally, the hand, indeed, gives birth to murder, but the mind, when infected with anger and hatred, conceives it. But really, what does John Calvin know? I mean, you know, so he's saying, yeah, so externally, uh, God is concerned with murder, but but all, all, all external murder comes from an internal motive of anger and hatred. But Let's not take John Calvin's word for it. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. That's kind of harsh. Maybe Jesus will be nicer to us about this issue of murder of of your neighbor. Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at verses 21 and 22. This is Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. This is the words of our Lord speaking. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. Sound familiar? And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. This is what we've heard. Jesus goes on. But I say to you, in verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Well, Jesus is actually meaner to us than John Calvin was. Anybody who hates their brother is guilty to the judgment. Anyone who speaks an insult against their brother is against is a, up for judgment before the council. And anyone who simply says, you fool, an offhanded derogatory comment to their neighbor, to their brother, is guilty 
of the hell of fire. That's ramping the commandment up a little bit. This is, this is taking Jesus, this is the reason why we've kind of expanded on all these uh, commandments, is taking the, the same stance that Jesus takes with the commandments. That when it says do not murder, it does not simply mean do not kill with your hand. That there is a lot internally going on that is talking about in this commandment. That he is saying that we are to read this commandments in this way with a much broader meaning then their simple statements make at face value. This is why 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, we almost got to it in Sunday school, says everyone who hates his brother, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And when we bring the law out to that broad implication, anger at your brother, speaking offhandedly, rudely, insulting your brother, is a seed of murder. And we broaden it out to that level, we find ourselves in a world of trouble. Ever speak out against your neighbor? Ever get angry at your neighbor? Maybe you don't want them to die. But if you have ill will, if you get angry, that is, in a biblical sense, a seed of their ultimate death. That is a seed, that is a murderous seed that I would wish this person ill. Here's how the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. It says, In forbidding murder, God means to teach us that he abhors the root of murder which is envy, hatred, anger, desire for revenge, and that he regards all of these as hidden murder. So when we come to the sixth commandment, we cannot just so easily say, well, I haven't murdered anyone with my my own hand, so I'm clean. We have to ask, how much hidden murder do I have in my heart? Envy, envy is hidden murder. When you see what someone else has and you want it, which good night. Our culture is built around this now. Every commercial you watch, I, I have to be careful what stations we let Joel tune into because it produces commercials which tell you this is the thing the kid has and you should want it too. And in a real sense, envy, which is what our culture, what consumerism is built on, wanting what somebody else has, is a, hidden, is a seed of hidden murder. It's saying what you have I want, and if it means you die for me to get it, I'm okay. That's the, that's the full uh, playing out of the hidden sin of envy. It is murder of our neighbor. Any honest person sitting down for five minutes of reflection will find themselves buried in condemnation. You start working back every time you've committed hidden murder in your heart through envy, through hatred, through anger, through desire for revenge. Those all hidden murder. But we don't even get an end there. So there, I think we're guilty. I could stop and move on, but guess what? We don't even get an end there. We have to keep digging in. What is this commandment about? And one of the realities that flows from the Ten Commandments is that when a positive is stated, the contrary negative is implied. And when a, when a negative is stated, a contrary positive is implied. So therefore, not only are we not to murder fellow image bearers, but the positive implication is that we are to work and do what is in our power for their good. So not only are we not to murder our neighbor, but if it's within our power to do them good and we fail to do it, we are Sixth Commandment breakers. Ever have a neighbor in need that you could have done something about and just didn't want to do it, just didn't bother, didn't want to do go the extra mile for your brother in need? That is, at its core, the positive 
implication, breaking of the sixth commandment by not doing good for your neighbor when you had the chance to. Michael Horton says this, he says, Thou shalt not kill means much more than the negative keeping ourselves from physical violence. It also means that we look after the physical and spiritual well-being of our neighbor, a person who may even be an enemy, somebody you don't even like, an enemy to you, that you look out for their well-being. In your bulletins, I have printed in there the Westminster, Westminster Larger Catechism response to the Sixth Commandment. It's on the back of the page there. Take that home and talk about, you think I'm being comprehensive. You can look that up online, or I've got a copy I can get to you if you want it, that has all the scripture references for basically every word that's stated in that little statement there. And you can see that though this is a negative command to not murder, they break it down into two responses. And the first is that what duties are required by the sixth commandment, and then going on, what sins are prohibited. They do this with all the commandments. What response is being required, what duty is required, and what sin is prohibited. And the opening statement says it like this, the duties required in the sixth commandment are all due care and legitimate endeavor to preserve the life of ourselves and others. All due care to and legitimate endeavor to preserve the life of ourselves and others. The sixth commandment not only prohibits our outer destruction of our brother in every degree, our inner hatred of our fellow man in any degree, it also demands our work for the good of our fellow man. If you see your neighbor in need in an area that you can provide help for, reasonably serve them, and you do not help them, you are a sixth commandment breaker. These are broad. Do not murder. And though we thought we walked in here and saw that, and boy, I got a pass this morning. Thank goodness I have not murdered anybody. But you start talking about hidden murder, hatred, anger, revenge. You start talking about a failure to do good to your neighbor is murder towards your neighbor. We find we are six commandment breakers. Let's go on a little further if we could. Let's try to hit the ground level where the rubber, rubber meets the road a little bit. Self-care talks about damage to ourselves. There, we can go a long ways down the road. We start talking about substance abuse. We start talking about things like binge drinking. Start talking about overeating. Start talking about all sorts of things like that that are unhealthy for you. In a very real way, it is murder against yourself to not honor your use yourself as an image bearer, your body as an image bearer of Christ, to go down the road of unhealthy practices. How about sleep habits? Ever, this is for my generation, work so hard, stay up late, and cram a few Red Bulls instead of just getting the sleep you should get? Depriving yourself of sleep, an unhealthy practice, is Sixth Commandment breaking. Is that broad enough for you to find you under the commandment of, of do not murder when you fail to take care of yourself, taking unnecessary risks? We're getting into sports season, right? And uh, I can point out everyone else on this one because thankfully I'm not guilty of this one, right? So, but school sports will soon be in swing and so we're going to go out to the football game. And you know, it's the, it's the worst idea ever, but those games are all officiated by other human beings, and believe it or not, they make mistakes, don't they? Have you never seen it? I don't usually see it. I don't have that good of an eye. But I hear, I'm usually sitting by somebody else that sees it who gets angry and pretty soon, you know, isn't it, isn't it weird that we have to have Delwyn has to get on the mic and say, 
we encourage sportsmanlike conduct. You know, we don't, please do not, please treat each other with respect, blah, 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 blah. That is, in, in a real way, the muzzle of the law, to, to not murder. If, if you, what else is it? What else is it except when you scream out at a ref, you, whatever, you would say, do you not, are you blind? You know, something along those lines. It is a seed of murder, honestly. I mean, and I know that, boy, Darren, you're just getting real. Think about these things. How many times does that happen? That you, in a fit of anger, in a fit of whatever, you get caught up in the moment, and you wish the ill for someone else. You want them, maybe not to die, but you want them to get, you know, you want them to figure it out. You want to do them some harm. You want them to, that is breaking of the sixth commandment. Yes, Christian, you murder your fellow image bearer when you angrily curse them. Yes, Christian, you are, in a very real way, a breaker of the sixth commandment that says to you not to murder. You ever been in a Bible study, and we almost got there this morning in a Sunday school class, where someone says a question like, can God forgive a murderer? You know, if someone's committed murder, like they have killed someone in cold blood, and they say, can God really forgive a heinous sin like murder? After hearing this sermon today, you better, your answer to this, if someone says, can God forgive a murderer, this is how you answer, I sure hope so. Because if he doesn't, I'm in trouble. Because a hidden murder is a real breaking of the sixth commandment. If God doesn't forgive murderers, we're all in trouble. Now, maybe you haven't with your hands killed someone. But when you bring that commandment out, we find ourselves all guilty under the judgment of God. We are all in trouble. If God doesn't forgive murderers, then we're all in trouble. So then what? We all sit under the condemnation of the law as murderers. What can be done? End of story. One, two, three, four, five, six. We're racking them up. We got all six of them. We are failing, 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 failing. Is there anyone who isn't a murderer by this standard? Is there anyone who can live up to this standard? Think about it. Is there anyone? Have you ever known anyone who never had any hidden murder, malice, revenge, envy, any of that? Is there anyone? Yes, there is, church, right? Jesus Christ lived the sinless life. Matthew chapter 27. This is fascinating to look at. Matthew chapter 27. Jesus, this is the miss of his crucifixion, going on trial. It's a kangaroo trial, a kangaroo court. It's a false trial. He's done no wrong. And here they are. Being, he's being slandered. He's being beaten. He's got a crown of thorns crushed down on his head. He's being whipped. He's being spit upon. He's being cursed. All of these things coming to him. Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 14. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Slander, false accusations, saying things against Jesus. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. In that moment, all that hatred coming towards you, how does a sinner normally respond? You want, to, you want a taste of that? I got some to give back to you. What does Jesus do? Verse 14. But he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. In the very midst of his own being murdered, which is what Jesus was. He was murdered on a cross. In the very midst of his own being murdered, he refuses to even murder in his heart so that he can secure the forgiveness of his murderers. In the midst of being murdered, 
Jesus refuses to murder even in his heart, even with his speech, so that going to the cross and suffering that murder, dying in the place of sinners, he refuses to murder even his own murderers so that he can secure their forgiveness. And yes, this forgiveness for murderers like you and like me. Jesus in Isaiah 53, 7, this prophecy about him says that as a sheep before his shears, so he opened not his mouth. Christ perfectly fulfills the law. Who can keep the sixth commandment when it's this broad? Jesus can, and Jesus did. And does he do it just for himself? No. Christ secures righteousness so that when our sin is given or imputed to him on the cross, there is righteousness to give back to us. It isn't just a wiping clean of the slate. Okay, I looked at Jesus. I trust in him. He'll wipe the slate clean. I'm no longer guilty of murder. Well, what happens that five minutes later when you commit inner murder again against someone? You're guilty again. Christ doesn't just wipe away your guilt. He gives you his righteousness. When by faith in him, it's called the double imputation. Our sin is given to Christ. His righteousness is given to us such that when God looks at us, he no longer sees sinner. He sees child. He sees righteousness. He sees one of my own. It's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says when it says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. It's Jesus. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. This is why the gospel is such good news to be rejoiced in. When you see yourself as the great sinner that you are, and the great salvation that is found in Jesus Christ, it overshadows every trouble in your life. I don't deserve a lick of attention from the creator of this universe. We're six deep in his righteous command, good law, and I failed on every point. He shouldn't look at me with any sort of favor. And what does he do? He doesn't just look at me. He sends his son lives the life I should have lived, dies the death that I deserve, so that by His grace and His mercy, looking to Christ, repenting of my sins, trusting in Him, that is wiped away. And the God I should have no business even being able to look toward adopts me as His own child. The reality the Bible puts forward for us is one that all those who are His through faith in Christ will be finally and fully delivered from all the pain and struggle and suffering of this life. We will be in the presence of our God. And thanks to Christ and His work, we will be in God's presence in His favor in eternity. It is so important to remember this larger narrative, the bigger story and the bigger reality of life, so that whenever we get pulled into the the microcosm of our own existence, we see our own problems, we see... Oh, this is, this is going bad. All these, I got a million things flying around me that are overwhelming me and not going the way that I want them to go to look up and remember. The biggest problem you could do nothing about, Jesus did something about it for you. None of the problems you face in this life are your biggest problem. Standing before a holy God, deserving of his justice, and having no forgiveness or no redemption, that's your biggest problem. And that is why Jesus and the gospel are our greatest joy. That big narrative. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for aid. 
Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, lest I die. That is what we cling to. That is what the gospel brings to us as we sit and confess, God, I'm messing this up. I have no hope of my own. But I trust in Christ, my Savior, and in him alone. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes and hearts that see and rejoice. This world throws so much at us, God. All this ground, all these other things are sinking sand. We want to, on Christ, the solid rock, plant our feet. The hope that we have in him, the promise of an eternal, secure future in your joy forever. God, may that be our hope and joy of all joys. It is not an eternal future that I have secured by the sweat of my own brow. It is an eternal future of joy secured to me by the love and the death and the resurrection of another, our Savior, my Savior, Jesus Christ. May that be our hope and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.